0: Hello, and welcome to Crafting the Crypto Economy. I am Silvia Sanchez, project manager at OWL Explains by Ava Labs, and today we bring you a transformative podcast series in partnership with the Crypto and Blockchain Economic Research Forum. This series features leading faculty from renowned global universities exploring various elements in the blockchain ecosystem. These episodes are a bit longer than our usual hootenannies, since we will be getting very deep. And also, each episode will have its accompanying paper posted on our website for further reading. And with that, I will hand it over to our moderators, Fahad Saleh and Andreas Park.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Crafting the Crypto Economy podcast series organized by the Crypto Economics and Blockchain Research Forum, CBER and uh, OWL. Today, we're going to talk about DeFi lending and DeFi lending markets. Just as a reminder, our first podcast covered the trading of crypto tokens. Um, if you think about a um, world of finance, a natural thing is that people need to be able to trade things. And the second iteration, of course, is that people in the financial world want to borrow and lend. So we're very happy to have uh, the authors of a new paper titled Equilibrium in a DeFi Lending Market. Um, we have Thomas Riviera, uh, Quentin Van der Veer, And uh, Fahad Saleh, who uh, will have two hats on today. One will be as the host and the other one will be as one of the authors of the paper. So welcome, everybody.
2: Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you.
1: So maybe we can start very briefly. uh, Starting with you, Thomas, to to introduce yourself so that people have some background on where you're from and what your journey is to crypto.
3: Uh, Sure. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor of finance at McGill University. Uh, I have a background in economics, a PhD in economics, particularly focusing on the microeconomics. And um, yeah, recently I've, I have a deep interest in, in the economics of blockchain, both in terms of consensus protocols uh, as well as uh, decentralized finance and
2: these are very interesting applications that arise.
1: Very nice. Uh, thanks, thanks, Thomas. So, Quentin, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, I'm also an nice assistant professor of finance. I'm at the uh, University of Chicago in the Business School. Um, So my journey to cryptocurrency is really uh, coming through stablecoins because my background is more in asset pricing and monetary policy and banking. So stablecoin was kind of like the way I got interested in the DeFi environment and then from there on expanding, I guess.
1: Very nice. All right. So then maybe let's just uh, jump right into, into the topic area. So I think what would be very useful is for people, for our listeners to just generally understand what we actually mean if we talk about DeFi lending. Um, Now, you know, there's actually various different forms out there. Um, If you think about some stable coins, you can think about those actually also as as debt products. But I think we have something very particular here in mind. We have in mind lending platforms where people deposit tokens and other people can take up loans. Um, But before I blubber too much about this, uh, uh, Thomas, Going back to you, um, how would you describe DeFi lending in a, in a very succinct way?
3: Yeah, so I, I think you, you sort of nailed the, the very basics of it. Um, people can deposit crypto assets into these uh, smart contracts. Once they're deposited, others can come and borrow uh, those assets. And there's a sort of way that interest rates are determined uh, almost mechanically through this, the, the design of the, of the smart contract. Um you did touch on this fact that you know trading is a very natural part uh it's a natural feature that you'd want to see in the blockchain ecosystem I would sort of pair that when you think about defi lending um with a type of securities lending so if you really dig into understand what are these defi lending platforms used for it's not quite the home equity type story where you put your post your house as collateral and get some some cash to, to to spend. Instead, it's more along the lines of when when you have information about cryptocurrencies and you want to trade it in a certain direction. Let's say you want to short a cryptocurrency. Um, that's precisely the service that these DeFi lending platforms uh, are providing right now. And and this is a service that you can't find elsewhere on the blockchain. So so we we do see it as sort of a vital service.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. Now um, taking a step back, though, from the from the usage of them ultimately, um, because as you can imagine, you can, you can use crypto assets in a variety of different forms. Let's try to get more a little bit at the core of, of the functionality. So how, let's say, would it normally work? Say I am a user, I have, let's say, a stable coin, um, I want to put it to good use. Um, how, how would I go about this if I want to become, can I become a lender by myself? How would that work?
2: All right. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. So that's that's what the that's the kind of service that the DeFi lending platform is going to provide. So you have a smart contract that is out there that allows everyone that has some form of a crypto asset to basically deposit this asset into the smart contract, lock it so that somebody else can borrow that particular asset. And uh, the, the role of this smart contract, this platform, is going to pull all these assets together and ensure some form of safety and some form of uh, remuneration for you to lend something called an interest rate, uh, normally also in this case.
1: So in some sense, you know, I pool my resources and that's actually not very much unlike what happens in a bank, right? So people put their deposits in the bank and then the bank lends the, lends the funds out to, to third parties or people who want to take up the loan, right? Exactly. And- okay. And so then how do you, where, where does the interest rate come from? I mean, how, how does that work?
3: Yeah, so this is sort of a unique feature of these DeFi lending platforms is that the interest rate is set sort of internally based on a, a parameter, which, which is effectively the fraction of the loanable funds that are being borrowed. So when this, when let's say you have 50% of the funds supplied to the contract are being borrowed, that's going to equate to an interest rate, this sort of interest rate at 50%. When that it, when the fraction of funds being borrowed moves, then so will that interest rate. And you can very easily see this functional relationship, uh, for example, by going onto the website of Ave or Compound. They'll show you exactly um, as the utilization of funds changes how the interest rates are going to change. Another important feature, you know, sometimes unlike a bank, um, which is 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 the fact that the interest of the borrowers. Mo- You know, if not most, if not all of this interest is going to be passed through to the lenders. And so this is also something that that you can very sort of concretely see as a lender. If if 50% or 80% of the funds are being borrowed, exactly how much interest will the borrowers pay? And exactly how much interest will the lenders receive? So
0: maybe we could provide a little bit more context in terms of the actual sort of why it's designed this way um so can can either of you talk a little bit about sort of the the frictions that are at play here that cause uh this to be the process or that led people to specify a process like this
2: yeah i think i, I can maybe take that one so thomas and i probably diverge a little i think the way the way i would think about that is like there's a mostly two main frictions that matters here for me there's one that's going to be something called liquidity um the fact that you would like at at some point in time, when you're a borrower and you need cash, it's convenient for you to have a platform that actually has some cash on hands that you can withdraw from. That's going to be a big advantage from you as compared to just a platform where you can submit a bit and then wait for a day so that they collect bits on the other side. Then eventually they match you together and then they give you the loan tomorrow. So I think that's one of the reasons why they find it convenient to set up uh, everything as a function of Something called the utilization rate, so the the pool of cash that's available um, to the lenders, so that the the cash is sitting there and it's available whenever it's ready.
1: So, so in many ways, if, if I may, just interject here, right? So, if you if it if you go but bring this back to a layperson, right? So, in in a certain sense, is it looks very much like what normal financial institutions are doing. You put your funds into a particular pool. The pool is used to to send money out. And I presume, as you described this, Thomas, there is some form of uh, increasing cost for a loan depending on what the what the liquidity setup in in the market is. I mean, we see this also in other markets. If if people acquire a lot of money, then eventually the price for uh, for those loans would increase. Although we can argue in in the real world there is because the you know uh, central banks set a benchmark, right? They set basically a floor for how much you can get elsewhere. There's a bit of a you know the market is. There's not full market utilization if you want. So in this case here, what is really the critical part? If I if I if I can just take the the different uh, items that you and and Quantum so Thomas and Quentin have said is, it's number one is the immediate availability. So there is no question that I have to look at a loan officer. It's just entirely programmatic and automatic. And the second part is that. Instead of what we, you know, in our now world as economists, we like to think of people come together in the market and they put their bids in, and then miraculously the, the, the you know, the invisible hand creates the equi- equilibrates uh, demand and supply. Here, this is really just hard coded, right? And so the question that arises then is how good is this hard coding? And is this any fair reflection of what a market would come out? Is that roughly what you're trying to accomplish? So, but just to
0: clarify, so we're, what we're talking about here is that. Effectively, you can have on demand loans, right? And they're trying to ensure that I did I want to borrow, I don't have to wait four days to borrow. I can get my loan priced up basically immediately and get my capital uh, for the loan. Is that right?
3: Yeah, so so I I, there's a lot of sort of features that go into making lending work on a blockchain, right? One of the big concerns is this: is there's anonymity. So when I come and borrow, you don't know who I am, and if if somehow I could get away with not paying the loan, obviously I would take advantage of that. So I I think it's worth mentioning that there's also all of these loans are over collateralized, and so this sort of levels the playing field, where provided that you have enough collateral for your loan, the, the lenders are not worried about you sort of running away with, and never repaying them. Um, now once you have that in place, the, the lenders, uh, you know, let's say a well-functioning collateral mechanism in place, the lenders are basically going to be thinking, okay, all of these loans are going to be repaid and sort of the only challenges left are, are how do we set uh, interest rates? So the design for the utilization. So it starts with a very simple idea, right? As you have fewer funds, as Quentin was alluding to earlier, as you have fewer funds available to be lent, you would like to see interest rates go up to make sure that you know it's the most you know, uh, uh, promising loans, the loans that generate the most value that are the ones that are borrowing those last few uh, precious dollars of loanable funds. So I think it's very natural to say, okay, let's take utilization of funds. Let's create interest rates, which basically say, when utilization goes up, more and more of those funds are being borrowed. So do the interest rates, similar to uh, uh, traditional sort of market forces that would have interest rates go up when there's a high demand for loanable.
1: So now I have a little bit of a, a sidetrack question, um, and I'm wondering if, if when you actually can answer this, um, this all sounds really well thought out. When, you know, when you're say far from a hundred percent usage of all the funds, right? Um, but there is a concern that you might have which is that if somebody you know as so i imagine the following happens as you take up a loan uh you accumulate interest balances right so um, depending on what the interest rate is over time you just owe more and more and more to the pool and you kind of have to worry about the, um, you know, whether or not the pool is actually well capitalized. So, is there actually enough money there to satisfy, say, withdrawal requests? So, if I want to take my money out, can I actually get that out? In particular, can I get it out with interest? Can you speak maybe to for just a minute or so? Uh, maybe Quentin, you I've seen you nodding um, about how that is actually handled on a practical level.
2: Right. So before getting there, from mine, so I'm I'm going to get there. Not worry, but. So I think the idea is that well, you're touching to a fundamental trade-off. I want to introduce that one first. So I think fundamental trade-off is that, in a way, having a lower utilization rate than 100%, one might see that as being wasteful. Because now you have some people that are lending some money that that money is just hid It's not lent back to somebody else. So that actually has some like very practical implication. It means that now the interest rates that you're going to take from the, from the borrowers and then move on to the to the lenders is going to be is going to have to be reduced because you are going to have more uh, lenders than you have borrowers. So that's that's some form of inefficiency. But then on the other side, as you mentioned, you also when you are uh, lending to the platform, you also want to mitigate some form of liquidity risk or even like some sovereignty risk for the, for the platform. You accumulate these uh, interest rates, but you don't know if you're actually going to be able to withdraw. So the way uh, the platform is uh, handling this kind of situation is actually by doing some form of um, redemption uh, gates. or They are like preventing you from um, taking your money out whenever the utilization rate is too high. And so that's actually a source of liquidity risk that whenever you're lending to this platform, you have to think about and then beyond that if you imagine like some very bad event would happen on the collateral asset or whatever and you cannot withdraw then you might also face some actual risk where your money is actually locked there and then there is not enough money for everyone again that kind of like draws to the analogy with banking where you might have like some form of like a banking alone banking run or some kind of some kind of issue uh, of that nature
1: so but just and just to ask, is there also some form of like equity buffer in any form? Um,
2: yeah, so no, right? No, so, so so that so that's correct. So it, it depends on the exact platform. Maybe uh, I know Fahad has better knowledge of the institutional details here than, than I do. My understanding is that there's two parts of the buffer. The, buff, or the, the equity buffer, is decomposed into two parts. One part is just the utilization rate. So you can think of the utilization rate, or like the, the other side of the utilization rate, like the twenty percent of non-utilization rate that you might get, uh, that's going to serve as implicit equity on the platform that's going to protect against like movement in price um, and the collateral assets. But, but also um, on top of that, you might have some additional uh, equity trenches in some of these platforms. I believe there's like some reserve fund, I don't, I don't remember, maybe mm-hmm. Charat can intervene or Thomas. Well, I
3: can, I, I can tell you, for example, Aave, they, they take about 15% of all the interest paid And they put this into a reserve fund and it's used precisely for buffers to worry about insolvencies. Again, I don't want to get into too many of the details about the collateral mechanism. The idea is that it works. And so basically loans um, that are whose collateral is dropping in value, they will be sort of closed out mechanically before uh, the collateral value drops below the loan value. Now, this is only going to hold in, 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 in let's say, normal times. Uh, there is slight risk that when there's high blockchain congestion, you might miss some of these loans and this might lead to insolvencies. And so that's also a sort of use for these reserves, which is to say if, if, if the collateral mechanism fails because of things out of their control, let's say high congestion on the blockchain, these reserves are here to cover losses, to provide, to have some extra liquidity if people want to pool their funds. Uh, off of the platform, and so so you you have in, in tandem the reserves as well as the fact that all of these platforms are targeting targeting utilization rates strictly less than one. So that means you know if your target is eighty percent, that means you you're always going to have twenty percent of funds available. Those are funds that people can come and borrow when they really really want to. Um, but these are also funds that lenders can use to redeem, uh, you know, sort of uh, pull out their their loanable funds when they also want to stop lending to the platform.
0: So we're talking about now a sort of a couple of different things I think as it pertains to these lending platforms. But I wanted to kind of take a step back and think sort of about some of the more fundamental aspects here again for a moment and kind of relating to some of the discussion that just happened now. So uh, Thomas just sort of uh, referred to this point that you know part of the the interest payments uh, from borrowers uh, they they don't necessarily go to lenders right? Um, And that seems to be kind of an important thing, right? But then, in fact, one way to think about, so we talked about, we were discussing how interest rates are set. And so, you know, we said, well, uh, they're set as a function of this utilization rate. And so that's where the borrower interest rate is set. But what do we do with the borrower payments? Well, I guess the ideal thing is that these borrower payments are going to be given to the lenders, but apparently not entirely because there are other things to be concerned about. Like, for example, um, if there's actually uh, uh, if there's actually some capital still left over. Um, but then, so I guess maybe asking kind of a big picture question here to either Thomas or Quinn. What do you see as sort of the, the high-level pitch for people in, uh, in, in the crypto world as to why uh, having this sort of mechanism in the first place is useful? Like what is the, um, uh, when, when we compare pricing, let's say, in this setting to Setting in any in any uh, to any sort of more traditional setting, I think we've sort of been talking around this point that there's an effect like more uh, discretionary abilities in the uh, in the traditional settings, and and a lot of people feel like well that's great because the world is really dynamic and um, and you know it's good to to incorporate all of that in a discretionary way. Um what's the trade-off to that though? Like so what's what's the what's the crypto uh, enthusiast answer to somebody saying, hey, you know, the world's really complicated. I don't like this idea that you're gonna sort of uh make this thing mechanical, even if it's a function of you know utilization. I mean lots of things can happen in the world. What what is what is the what is the flip side to that?
3: Uh no, yeah, so I, I would say when you th- when you look at the way uh interest rates are set in practice, right? Um, in many markets, especially small markets, uh, markets with very few banks, very few competitors, right? These interest rates may not always fully reflect the underlying states of the credit market. So you may get a high interest rate, even though uh, in other in other parts of the economy, you know, you, you, other lenders can get much lower rates in in a more competitive environment. So the first thing would be. If you take discretion out of large intermediaries hands, especially those with large market power, there's a world where you can actually make the end user better off because uh, they're getting competitive rates. Now, does the DeFi lending platform actually offer you this? Well, it's not clear because effectively this, this boils down to a thing called the Oracle problem, which is that. The smart contract, ideally, you'd like it to be like a bank where the interest rate it sets is some variable rate, uh, you know, LIBOR, the LIBOR rate plus some, you know, uh, uh, some percentage, right? The problem with blockchain is that feeding that information to the blockchain uh, is very, uh, let's say, uh, difficult, especially if you want to really rely on the information that's being fed. So while smart contracts can read information, uh, it's, it's much more difficult for them to read information that does, that wasn't created on the blockchain. Now, utilization rates, which is basically what is determining the interest rates in DeFi lending, that's mechanically information that's produced by the DeFi lending smart contract. Whereas other rates like the Fed's fund rate or LIBOR, this is something that's produced off of the blockchain and, and therefore becomes very difficult to incorporate onto the blockchain. So if I if I may,
1: I would like to take another step back, right? So just to summarize what I've what I've heard so far, right? So again, we have we create a lending pool where people submit their their assets so that they can be borrowed out. There is a function that determines the interest rate. Uh, this interest rate depends on the reutilization rate, which is really just the ratio of the amounts borrowed by uh, and the uh, the uh, amount uh, made available. Um, there is an interest rate spread being charged and the spread amount, if you want, goes to a reserve pool or if you want to the equity of the platform. So all of that actually sounds pretty much like a bank in many ways. Now, as as Thomas, you pointed out, one of the issues is we don't really know everything about the market. And we would assume, for instance, if we say, think about, we have the various different platforms and there would be different, you know, there would be, uh, you know, essentially you could, Say that in many ways they emulate banks, except that there is a little bit that is missing, right? And you're saying essentially this is some information that they're missing, that they can't fully incorporate. Now I have a question here. So th- there is an interest rate which, uh, which depends on the utilization rate. Now that's a function. Now very naively, I would imagine this is maybe some form of a upward sloping function. So who sets the slope?
2: Well, that's a very good question. So the answer would be like getting back to the banking analogy. This would be the equity owner, or like the, the or the manager of the bank or of the platform. So the way it works, I guess, very often in these DeFi environments, um, there is also another token that's going to be issued that will serve the roles as an equity token, and will serve the roles an equity token in two different fashion on the two different roles of uh, of what we think about an, an equity or an equity share. Uh, typically. So we'll like, give um, some uh, entitleship to the, to the underlying profits that the firm is going to make. It is also going to give you some role in the management of the company, or in this case, of the, of the, of the platform. And so here the difference that it's going to be a little bit more decentralized in the sense that there's going to be like an ongoing voting mechanism that happens online and are quite e- efficient. Um but at the end of the day, I think this is actually quite close. So you have in the first place, you have this you have this um, um function that says the interest rates, that's automatized, but you still need to decide on the slope. And the decision on the slope are going to be made by these equity holders.
1: I see. So this is I think mean, this is very interesting because fundamentally what this this brings me to another difference that's there, right? So in a bank, you can argue that you know, the decisions of the lending rate that is available to to borrowers for whatever it is that they want to borrow is really determined if you want by committee, right? Um, you know, it could be by the board, it could be by a lower level manager, but there is a certain uh, outsourcing of information of the decision from the shareholders to a manager. And what you're saying here is, this is really very direct. It's like a direct democracy. So the the owners of the token, I imagine, I imagine, you think this is the DAO token, so for a decentralized autonomous organization, those guys actually get to vote. I presume on a regular basis, like maybe what is it, biweekly or so, um, to to determine what their respective interest rates are. So it's not on a, it's, it will be on a schedule, I presume, in a way, right?
0: So um, just to jump in here, I, so I think what we're alluding to here is the governance tokens, right? Um, and, and, uh, and in some sense, this reflects the difficulty of the whole process, right? Because um, you initially specify this function, and in principle, you could leave the function as is. But in practice, what happens is frequently they decide for whatever reason it's not exactly ideal. And then there's a proposal that's put forth about changing the function, maybe for a particular market in isolation or something to that effect. But there's a bit of a sort of a trial and error that goes around it. Um, So, you know, we've been talking about slopes and I I don't know whether the uh, more pedantic of our viewers might be sitting there thinking, well, are you assuming linearity or something like that? Um, uh, But the funny thing, of course, is um, in many cases, they had actually started with, you know, with a a linear function and then they decided to get really, uh, really intricate going to a kink uh, piecewise linear now there there are of course platforms that do you know more involved things but if we're talking about for example abe um right now they're using a, a kinked function and they and and it is a bit kind of ad hoc which i guess gets back to this question about how easy is it to specify this interest rate setting protocol in a way that it actually uh does what you want it to do and in some sense even like what do what exactly do you want it to do? I mean, how do you know? Uh, what? 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 what uh, stepping back, what is it that these lending platforms are trying to achieve through that interest rate setting uh, mechanism? And yeah, how hard is it to actually to achieve those things?
3: Yeah, uh, this is a great question. Um... So, yeah, I mean, you, 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 basically one goal of, of these uh, platforms is to always have loans available uh, to, to be lent out. Uh, again, you know, borrowers may come and may, they may have different sort of proclivity to borrow, right, for different purposes. And so, again, you, you want to design the interest rate function, right? So this determines how interest rates move with the utilization of the underlying funds. You, somebody mentioned it earlier, you want it to be upward sloping. Because when more funds are taken out, this is sort of a market signaling that there's higher demand. And so naturally, to to, to make sure that there's not too much demand relative to supply, you you always, as economists, we use the price as the equalizer, right? So demand increases. Now, more of the funds are being taken out. You're worried that you might might no longer have available funds. Well, why don't we just increase the price? Some people will decide at that higher price they no longer want to borrow and others will say, no, at this price, I'm still, I'm still happy to borrow. So this sort of mechanism here is, is designed, again, with this underlying goal of having the funds on hand ready to be borrowed. Now, an in, an interesting fact about this is that it's very hard to think about the stability of these interest rates, right? So when when when, let's say, demand in the underlying market increases, utilization is starting to go up, there's a question of when will it stop, right, uh, if ever. And, 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 and I think this is a fundamental question for the design of these underlying uh, platforms. So this is, this is one thing that we show in our paper, which is that, again, provided that you have this sort of upward sloping uh, interest rate function, you can actually ensure that whenever there's a change in the underlying supply or demand for loanable funds, you'll always, the utilization will adjust, but eventually it will stabilize until there's another change in the underlying supply and demand. Rather than just bouncing around all the time, I know when we first sat down to study this, we, we were unsure whether that would be the case or not.
2: Yeah, if, if I may uh, continue on that, so I, I think that's, that's great. That's like, fundamentally, you for, for making it to be efficient and to always be at the, at the level that you want it to be, at the utilization rate that you target, you would like to have a very high slope. That's fundamentally what Thomas was saying. Now, in reality, there is actually some force that's going to push you against doing that, which is that um, as, a, as a lender um, or as a borrower, you wanna be, you, want, you, wanna, you don't want to incur too high interest rates when you don't pay attention. Things that, remember, these interest rates, they are dynamic. You just put your money there and you don't know how much interest rate you're going to pay tomorrow because that depends on the evolution of the utilization rate. And so if you have now, um, um, a slope that is too high that means that there's just a little bit of a, um, imbalance between demand and supply you might end up with a huge increase in interest rates, and that's very good from an efficiency perspective because at some point people will realize and they are going to pull out very fast but from an ex ante perspective you are going to have the lender are going to think twice before um, sorry the borrowers are going to think twice before borrowing in a, such a scheme because be worried that if they just like leave it for a day, go for a walk, and then they come back, and then they don't have any money anymore because the interest rate would have eaten. They've moved so much higher that it would have eaten all of their um, uh, wealth in the meantime. So
1: I, th- I think if you we became at a, it a this became very very detailed um all of a sudden and and very intricate. I think we have to break this down for the audience a little more. But I thought actually Fahad, you, you presented actually pretty good segue to 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 the particular paper right so that we're that we're trying to discuss here uh, beyond the the general intricacies of the borrowing and lending market. Um, one thing I will say, um, I th- and I think this is also something which is a little bit misunderstood, in particular when I talk about banks and. And the relationship to banks, because in banks we usually think of deposits, in particular, as being quite sticky, so that the decision is really often a question of that the bank tries to pick an interest rate which uh, makes it the most money, right, to the extent it's possible in a, in a competitive environment. Whereas here, there's really lots of different parties together, right? So you have you have a change in the interest rate or in the, whatever in the slope of the interest rate that could have effect on both borrowers and lenders. So and I think this is one of the problems that you're trying to get at in your paper, right? Um, in how, how a market or how these smart contracts process that information. Now, um, now going back to, to uh, Fahad's segue to, the, to your paper, um, maybe you want to uh, describe what problem you have identified that exists with smart contracts. And I'm going to throw this back at Quentin because Quentin got, just gave a very intricate answer to something and I would just like to see if we can break this down a little and make it a little easier for the audience.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. I can I can try that that again. So we so Thomas um, explained that it would be actually good to have like an upward sloping um, PLF function or like a function that decides on the interest rate, which means that whenever the utilization rate goes up by a little, you would like to increase the interest rate by a, a high amount. And the reason is that the more re- that's going to make the market more reactive. If suddenly the interest rate goes up by a high amount, that means that the, the borrowers are going to react to that by uh, borrowing less. They are going to come back and, like, and, and reimburse their, and repay their, their, their loan. And that's going to basically push back the utilization rate in line with what's your target. So that's a good thing in terms of efficiency if you have a target in mind. But that basically assumes that agents are perfectly rational, they have all the information, and they are like very reactive. In practice, what's going to happen is that many of the, um, of, of the borrowers, they are going to have other things to do in life and are not going to track down at every second what's going on in this market. And what might, might happen is that if you have this very reactive function, you might be in a situation where uh, interest rate is going to shoot up to, I don't know, like 200%, like within a day. And if that happens, then you're just going to lose a lot of money if you have like a boring position in that market. And that might be a very bad news when you come back from, from home or from a, from, from, a, from a walk. And then you just realize that the value of your collateral now has been really uh, decreased because they adjusted for this very high interest rate. Now you need, to, you need to pay back a much higher amount. So there's basically a balance between the two. Like from an efficiency perspective, you'd like to have a very high slope, but like from an ex-ante value creation, you want to take into account that agents are facing some risk whenever you have a very high uh, slope. That's the argument I was trying to make.
1: And is there, I mean, so if I may just interject so very briefly, I think there's also an implicit assumption that you're making, which is that... Uh, you know, lending capital is also quite sticky in a sense of even, I mean, if the interest rate goes up a lot, then it's all of a sudden becomes very attractive to put lending capital in, but capital is hard to come by, right? And it's not actually moving that fast. So I think that would be another part exactly, here. Exactly.
2: If if on the other side, if on the, if on the lending side, the lending side would be extremely attentive all the time, that, that might mitigate that concern because they would also like put the utilization rate uh, back in line. But if one of the two, uh, if the two parties are the same time, are somewhat sticky or inattentive, then you might get into some trouble.
1: So you've now talked about some of the possible problems that could arise. They seem to be um, is this is this of a practical nature, or is this already something that you're explicitly taking into account in your particular model?
2: Yeah, so just just brief. so the way we are we have been working on this on this paper is basically we first build up the foundation, try to understand the nature of the problem. And and then we uh, came to this uh, first extreme solution where you actually wanna go as high slope as you can, and that's the way you're going to minimize the efficiency losses. But obviously now we are at a stage where we're trying to think beyond that and try to understand the kind of frictions that might push you towards what economists call an interior solution. So basically the idea that you don't wanna go like 100% positive or or 0% positive. You wanna go somewhere in the middle And so it's basically the trade-off between these two things. That's something we are currently working on incorporating into the paper.
1: So let me then just very briefly for the audience. So you you said this, uh, and I heard it within some of the subtext of what you said, is you have a a particular benchmark in mind of what is the optimal outcome. So what is the optimal outcome? And explain why it is the optimal outcome. Maybe, Thomas, you go for that.
3: Yeah, sure. So I, I actually wanted to come back to this because from the platform's perspective it's still not obvious what the what what the objective is you asked this question earlier what is ave or compound's objective here it's not obvious from the economist's perspective when it comes to these markets the objective is maximize efficiency and what that means is to find the price that clears the market right the price at which nobody else would want to borrow anymore and nobody else would want to lend anymore. And you get this sort of thing that we allude to as the market clearing, right? Um, And and so this is what uh, Quentin was alluding to when he said efficiency, right? Um, So now from the platform's perspective, it's not clear that their goal is efficiency uh, from this sort of economics perspective because their goal is also for the platform to grow and um, um the, you know so so I think while efficiency helps the users of the platform right it makes sure that the funds are being best allocated to the to the right borrowers um coming to the practical side right adoption of these platforms should be easy right it shouldn't come with huge risks and this speaks to this idea that if interest rates are moving around too much even if you have, uh on average efficient outcomes this could be enough to dissuade users from wanting to adopt uh these types of platforms so it's sort of like a dual purpose you want it economically to be as efficient as possible but you also want it to be user friendly you don't want your interest rates to be very volatile especially because before you borrow or lend from these platforms you're going to have to make an implicit sort of projection or forecast of what you think the interest rates you're going to earn or pay are going to be in in the coming Uh, You know, days or months. I see. So,
1: if I may, let me summarize. If I understand this, so, so in an ideal world, if we had a normal market, in a normal market, demand and supply balances, right? So, the amount of uh, funds made available for lending or for borrowing is exactly what borrowers would want to take up. And you're saying in terms of a platform, this is actually something that we can't really do because if there are shocks to the platform, the platform can't absorb it. As Quentin said, you go for a walk and then all of a sudden you're bankrupt afterwards. We can't have that. And so now what is the, the mechanism that prevents the, the full equilib- equilibration of demand and supply is, is simply one. Is it an information fiction? Is that the way to think about it? So there's something that you just don't know at the right time. Um, you know, the, the, the smart contract can't process information correctly. Is that what it is?
3: Right. So, th- this is, this is, so it starts first with the way that the interest rates are currently being set, right? And we're studying this mechanism. We're not studying other mechanisms. But if you take that mechanism at face value, what you're going to say is that the interest rate is always going to be determined ex ante, depend on the changes that have occurred in the utilization of funds. Right. This means that it's not like you're observing the changes to the credit market and then changing the interest rates. It's happening the other way around. And it turns out that when you have supply and demand that are moving at the same time, it's not going to be possible to just observe utilization and to understand what that means for the, the, the state of the underlying uh, credit market. So this is the informational problem, which is that you can't just learn what's happening in credit markets and map that like a bank would, a bank would say, look at the Fed's fund rate or look at LIBOR, use that as a benchmark, right? And when those things move, we know we're going to move our interest rates here. The platform can't do this. And so this is sort of represents one of the biggest inefficiencies, um, which would hold even for more general interest rate function designs. Uh, because of this sort of oracle problem or problem of feeding information to the blockchain from the real economy.
0: So there's a, there's a real fundamental point, I think, that Thomas is touching on now that sort of comes out of, of some of this work, um, which is that, you know, we were saying earlier that ultimately there's a complicated world out there Things are gonna change. You need the interest rates to be able to respond to that. Loosely speaking, interest rates need to respond to supply and demand somehow. There are frictions that sort of restrict how they can, which is why these platforms use the utilization rate. But what that tells you then is that these platforms kind of need the utilization rate to be moving, right? So how else uh, can, can, can the platform pick up? So in other words, if the, if the platform is pricing based on utilization rates and utilization is supposed to serve as a proxy for supply and demand, then utilization necessarily must be moving around so that you can use it to figure out um, uh, what's actually happening to supply and demand factors and, and therefore you can have interest rates reflect supply and demand. But the big problem uh, with that, which is more, than, uh, was more general than thinking about the case that, let's say you want supply equals demand, which means utilization would be one. Even if you say, as a lot of these platforms do, hey, we're going to target a utilization rate of 80% or 90%. Well, if you actually succeed in your goal of targeting that thing, doesn't that mean the utilization rate doesn't move? And if the utilization rate doesn't move, then how is it possible that your interest rates are going to respond to fluctuations in supply and demand when you encoded them to be a function of the utilization rate? Um, And so actually this, I think, leads to sort of, you know, one of the questions that that's come to my mind beyond the paper, which is that, okay, there are these frictions about how you can't access absolutely everything in the real world. But is it the right idea to specify this thing as a function of at least only the utilization rate? Right, like we've been talking about slopes and the and the and the and the and the, and the, and the function, but we've sort of been implicitly assuming that it must be a function of the utilization rate. I think one of the things that comes out of the analysis is. Is that right? Is that does,
2: should it be necessarily a function of the utilization rate? In my thought, that that's. I think it's kind of like um, they think about it as being uh, sufficient statistics, if you wish, for the the right equilibrium of supply and demand. You don't really care if you're just platform, if like movement is coming from demand or if it's coming from supply, as long as you know that you can like, you, that you can like incentivize to remain at the target that you have for a given interest rate. I think that's basically enough. That's, that's fine
0: but how would you, in, in that case how would you know so you, you, in the last part you were talking about the targeting again but if you succeed in the targeting then you wouldn't be able to actually know whether the, there's more demand or
2: you know whether you've got a positive demand shock how, how would you know if there is a demand shock etc in, in a way I would say you don't, you don't even really care about that I think to the, to the extent that the market remains in equilibrium there could be that all of the agents would be anticipating each other. They would know like when demand is moving, you have somebody that already anticipates the supply is moving exactly at the same, at the same moment as, as demand is moving, so that everything just remains in equilibrium. You never see any change in utilization rate, and that would work perfectly. You always remain exactly where you're supposed to be. I don't, I don't think there'd be an issue in, in something like that. That's my opinion. But are you assuming that you'd see a change in interest rates? So that's the
0: usual, like if we think about the, so let's call it the frictionless benchmark, we all studied in the intro to econ. Um, supply always equals demand, but the rates move, right? And so it seems to me the, 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 the issue here is that if you embed a relationship between the interest rate and the, let's call it, relative level of imbalance between supply and demand, which is essentially what the utilization rate is, then if you fix the
2: imbalance, you fix the
0: rate, and you've now lost the ability to adjust, right?
2: Yeah, so it depends if the, you think the shock is permanent or it's temporary. So if you, if you think the shock is, is a permanent shock, then we are getting back into the, the situation that Thomas described earlier, that you need something like Oracle, like Google, or you need like the governance token holder to meet at some point and decide they want to shift the, the whole um, slope or the whole curve, so that uh, eventually you get back to having both the utilization rate that you want and the right, correct uh, market rate. Otherwise, it's not going to work in this case. If you have temporary shocks, you think it's going to come back, then you don't, then, then you don't care. If, like you have some arbitrageurs that basically anticipate that these are just like noise trading, they might be able to bring the equilibrium back to where it's supposed to be, and that's actually good for you.
3: Yeah, and I would just say, I think Fahad and Quentin are alluding to this sort of fundamental problem, which is that you cannot always hit your target utilization, let's say of, of 80% while still, uh, uh, sorry, you, you can't hit your target utilization of 80% if the underlying credit markets are changing. Because that means when, let's say demand increases, the interest rate at 80% is going to be too low and that's going to push up utilization, right? Or, or, and, and and now you're no longer at your target. so. Fundamentally, when the the state of the world is changing, the state of the credit market is changing, you're not going to be able to to set an interest rate function that always gets you to hit your target 100% of the time. So you have to accept movement in the utilization. That means you have to accept movement in the underlying interest rates. And it's sort of like how well can you track the real world interest rates is is sort of a secondary question.
1: Now, as a practical matter, how far off is it though? Is it like, an order of magnitude off? So if we're talking about, let's say, an average interest rate of 5%, are we at 15 20% off? Or are we at uh, the order of basis points off?
3: So th- this is a tough question because it's not clear what you mean in terms of the what, what, re- what interest rate we should be using as a benchmark, right? Uh, the blockchain is itself its own sort of closed economy. And so interest rates are going to be determined within that economy and it's not clear that we should be taking the Fed funds rate, for example, as a benchmark or European interest rates as a benchmark. So all that we can say is that interest rates, you know, basically in under the current interest rate functions, you know, the the, the platforms had set targets. The, those targets sometimes are grossly missed, right, uh, due to underutilization of funds. Um, but yeah, again, I, I'm not sure there's a clear answer to this question of what's the right interest rate to begin with.
1: I'm just wondering if you had some simulations of some kind so that that gives us a little bit of a handle of this. I mean, imagine there's a target interest rate, right? There's a target re- utilization rate. And then, you know, you basically have a statement saying that it, it, it could be better,
0: right? So so I, I will say in practice, uh, there tend to be very large gaps between the target uh, utilization rates and uh, the realized ones. So as we're doing this, I'm actually uh, looking at, for example, RAP Bitcoin, which has a, a target utilization of 45 and an actual utilization right now of 10.6%. So I think, you know, the, the ability to target these things is, um, is, is, a, is a practically binding concern.
1: By the way, just just for my um, just so that I understand it, so the target rate is that the same as the rate where you mentioned earlier the kink of the of the function is, right? So that's kind of like the max that you're So then that will be the max that you're aiming for, right?
2: That that is correct. I, I would say there is no no phenomenal no fundamental reason for that, but it seems to be that's the heuristic that the platform has have adopted as a way to, to like basically signal that this is their target rate. They don't they don't wish to go beyond that. So the kink, the kink part it decides to increase the slope once you pass this particular point that you think is the right point. So uh, just to clarify, they, so they actually, if you, if you look at their
0: dashboards, like I'm, I'm on Avi's website now in the background here, they actually put a, a, a vertical line right at the king point and write optimal right there. Uh, and in principle, you have to realize it is, it's is—it's a continuous function, right? So it's not like you couldn't go above that rate. It's that the slope does get fairly steep. And in fact, one of the things I think that, you know, Thomas and Quentin and I have discussed in the past is that maybe they thought of it as a, as a way to kind of collapse the rates onto that point by having it be kinked there. But in practice, what it really does seem to do is it, it tends to force the rates to be below the kink because it's just really steep once you pass the kink. But in theory, the rates could... Uh, surpass um, the kink and we we've seen this in some very sort of extreme cases um, like for example, when uh tether was trading at this big premium and people started shorting it like crazy at the lending uh, protocols so then the, then then it did pass the kink, but that was for i would say reasons that you shouldn't be thinking about when you were sort of thinking of the general design um, of of these uh, of these platforms
1: no from a Again, from a practical perspective, um, I'm wondering one of the issues with these DeFi platforms is everything happens essentially in continuous time, and, and as Quentin pointed out, right? So your your walk could be a risk essentially, right? If if there's a major movement in in the lending rates, um, in the real world, we have a lot of we have a checkpoint, right? If you think of say repos, for instance, they get negotiated every day, right? Um, and so they're valid for a certain period of time. And so there's a certain discreteness to the market, in which the market can actually work out, you know, what happens when. Um, and in you know, for the DeFi protocols, I think the the mechanism by which the the utilization targets are changed, and the mechanism by which the, the rates are, or the if you want, the slope of the rates are changed, is really is is at a different time interval compared to what uh, people make decisions at. So is is that the fundamental problem? And is that a way to improve it? So if you had longer lending terms or a stable rates for a particular period of time or?
3: So I, I, would, just, I would just clarify that when, when, when interest rates move on a DeFi protocol, uh, it doesn't mean that when you arrive, you're getting locked in at that rate. The idea here is you're going to pay whatever the platform's rate is block by block. So it, even if you have short-term fluctuations in the rates, Provided that they settle relatively quickly to, let's say, some stable uh, rate, right? It's not going to be extremely expensive for you because even if it's a, even if it's 80% APY, if you turn that into what is the percentage you're paying for that particular block, uh, it's going to be very low. So then you you still have hopes, even when you walk away and interest rates blow up, that market forces will push those interest rates back down to normal levels let's say within a couple of blocks so that at the end of the day, it only costs you a few cents. What's more fundamental is if these rates and their fluctuation uh, do not event, uh, eventually stabilize and and that's where you're really concerned in terms of the walkway
0: risk. But by the way, just to provide some some uh, background context here. So Aave actually does provide a, a loan product that is not floating block by block, uh, the stable uh, loans. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have a fixed duration it has a, it has a reset point um, Now of course I guess from the from from the developer side that might be a little bit more complicated, but I guess part of what you're getting at is well uh, what's the benefit what's the economic benefit potentially of offering more than just a loan that uh, varies every you know 12 seconds block by block um, uh and you know that so um here i think our our banking experts um uh can jump in so you know quentin what do you what do you think of uh uh of platforms differentiating by offering these sorts of loans that are not just uh floating
2: at the block by block level yeah and it's interesting you mentioned repo because i think that's exactly the right analogy it's also what's my, where my expertise actually is and so i just want to Remind everyone here that those markets are not perfect either. So in the, on the repo market, we saw exactly that kind of problem in, um, in September 2019, where the, the repo is actually mostly overnight, so also has like this very short duration. And so, for because of many of the f- many frictions in that market, you ended up with like um, a very popular trait among hedge funds being um, to um, Uh, hold some long-term treasuries and then sell some futures contract against that. And then basically roll over these trades in the repo markets every day. And then that trade completely blew up uh, around that time because the repo rate suddenly was uh, uh, jumped up to almost 7% overnight. And they were like, these funds were all like very highly leveraged. And and so that meant that they made very large losses on these repo trades on the on a trade that was actually supposed to be perfectly safe, except that they didn't take into account that there might be like some frictions creating some liquidity issues in the funding market, in the funding market jumping So th- these issues are not specific to DeFi uh, lending at all, actually. They are like also there uh, in, in normal finance. So to answer to your question, if I had a bit more directly, I would say there's again a trade off here. The trade off is that if you want to offer like longer duration loans, and that's something you only do at the, at the platform level. But on the other side, the, the borrowers will still get like this overnight, uh, not, not overnight, I mean like uh, um, adjusting interest rates, floating interest rates. Then that means that actually the platform is going to take some, some form of like a duration risk here. And the platform taking some duration risk. That means that now the equity of the platform is bearing some more risk. And so that's also a risk that both sides of the platform have to take into account. So, again, I think there is, some, there is some trade-off between stabilizing the market on one side but then taking some more risks, more sovereignty risks in this particular case.
1: So, but um, if we if we take a step back now and, and look at the work that you've done,
2: is there anything that
1: you can say, um, you know, in terms of how, how can, we, can, we, can we learn from your paper of how to improve the existing DeFi lending mechanisms? Is there something that we get from that? Thomas?
3: yeah so this this speaks to this sort of fundamental trade-off uh, that Quentin was alluding to earlier so basically what we're what we're showing is that it's very easy to leverage the market forces to get your utilization within certain target rates the problem with this approach is precisely that in order to leverage these forces to let's say ensure that your utilization is always between 80 and 81 percent um, you need to basically uh, impose a lot of volatil- potential volatility on the underlying interest rates so there's sort of a trade off there where if as you want to target utilization rates that are closer and closer to your targets right and not deviating from that uh you need to set a steeper and steeper slope on 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 the interest rates and so now this 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 compounds this sort of walk away risk uh, problem especially if there are some traders that are just not attuned to what's going on in the market and they're just kind of haphazardly borrowing or lending, that could send your interest rates way out of whack. And and, and and this can create a lot of problems down the line. So if you didn't have this risk and if ma- the market perfectly snapped back into place every time there was some tr- some, some borrow- extra borrowing or lending on the platform, um, we show you can do very well setting these interest rates uh, in terms of this efficiency standard I mentioned earlier. Uh, in contrast, right, again, we want to weigh off the efficiency of the platform with adoption of the platform. And this sort of creates some more practical concerns about the designs that that at least we propose uh, in our paper. So
0: one practical point that I think comes very clearly out of the paper is precisely, one way to say it is utilization targeting has significant limits um, from the perspective of welfare. Um, Now, in terms of well, and just to, just to remind a little bit in terms of the, the intuition of it, it's, it's just that the utilization is how the, the, how, how the platform is actually, the variation of the utilization is how the platform is sort of internalizing uh, supply and demand shocks. And so when you target it, you sort of lose the ability for it to respond to those. But if you take that then, which I think is a clear insight that comes out of what we have, um, it it actually leads, I think, to an important discussion, which is, Maybe we should be thinking a little bit more broadly about the design space of these interest rate setting protocols. Does that mean that we need to rely on oracles for pricing? Does that mean we need to slow down the extent to which the pricing changes? Quentin alluded earlier to this idea that the governance process of setting the curve um, maybe should be a bit more active. Um, There's certainly, so. An immediate takeaway, again, is there's certainly a limitation to the, to the current, let's say, parametric setup if you're thinking about it in a static context, uh, meaning you, you set the curve and you leave it there forever. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a good discussion, I think, worth having about what exactly to do then, and it's, and it's not totally obvious, I think.
1: Well, there is also a bigger question and a related question, uh, which is as follows. I mean, in, in the paper, as I understand it, you're looking at an idealized... Uh, situation right so idealized frictionless market where the efficiency the efficient solution is very well defined and so on and so the question is i mean this for me now and then the thing that goes along maybe also a little bit with the discussion we had in the last podcast for Hart is what is the what is the increment what's the improvement actually is there an improvement over the existing market right so what what, what do we see here what, what advantages that we have and is there actually a gain or is this just worse?
3: Yeah. So if I could take that, um, I think there's a nice analogy. I, th- I mentioned at the beginning that you 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 kind of want to think of DeFi lending as a securities lending market. And so the right analog to sort of hone in on would be securities lending, let's say equities lending uh, in the real economy. Right. And so, you know, there's a recent paper showing that, you know, Vanguard um, is, is a very uh, active and you know, a powerful player in, in this space. And, and, and according to their estimates, they're, they're not passing through the interest that they get from lending these securities directly on to the providers of those securities. So to elaborate, basically every time you buy an ETF that's managed by a large fund, they're gonna custody the underlying stocks in that ETF for you. And they're gonna give you basically an ownership of that. Now, while they're holding on to those underlying stocks, they reserve the right to lend them out to other lenders. And they try to assure you that even though they're making money lending out your securities, that they're passing along those profits to you by charging you lower rates for managing the ETFs. Now, this paper is showing that basically the rates that they're passing through, once you account for everything, um, is, is, is not actually the sort of fair rate. And that 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 these, these intermediaries are profiting a lot off of the fact that they simply uh, are providing the service of custodying your assets. So here's a market where you could imagine this type of design might might be useful, right? We're, 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 we've been saying up until now, uh, effectively, DeFi lending is inefficient if you compare it to this idealized frictionless world where markets always clear. But in reality, there are, in these markets, there's there's a lot of market power. Monopoly power by intermediaries. And that means that, you know, for example, the deposit rates that you get at your bank need not represent anything close to that idealized competitive rate. So this is a sort of follow up question, which is, you know, yes, you cannot do as good as a a perfectly competitive market, but maybe you can do better than some markets where there's uh, a lot of rent extraction by these uh, uh, non competitive intermediaries.
2: I'm going to disappoint a little, then <laughs> frame the, the question like that. But um no, I, I think I think through like bank banking is uh typically a sector where there is extreme uh market concentration. And so one way of thinking about like the the benefit of DeFi and all that things that's going to help deconcentrate that market because the technology is fundamentally quite different. Like there's a lot of barriers to entry in like getting into banking and doing these things, a lot of regulatory burden, a lot of fixed costs involved in like getting into this market. That's why security lending market is extremely it's extremely um, segmented as a market. And so we are hoping that maybe by like uh, having this much more accessible technology that's much um that's that's easily reproducible, that's much more transparent as well, that could provide some more um uh deconcentration of the market and therefore uh, that the, the markups that these players are making might might get reduced uh, down the line for that reason as well. Now really boils down to why do we think that there is market concentration in the first place, and the rate is going to be a combination of different things. So it's going to be a combination of various entry, but also um, some of like a natural network economies effects meaning that you you really want to um, interact with big players because you know big players have deep pockets as well. So this can be, and that provides, some form, of like natural monopoly, and then uh, these actors can revamp the value of this natural monopoly. So on the, I guess, like the, the benefits of uh, deconcentrating the market is going to depend to whether you're saying it's more coming from the former or from the latter force.
1: So you know, I have a, I have an immediate follow-up question actually because both of you brought up the issue of market power in particular. Uh, you know, he brought up the issue of delegated portfolio management and and then, you know, essentially the portfolio manager keeping many of the gains for themselves. So that kind of points at, at two things here, right? So, and, and I'm going to make a much broader point here than than just looking at the borrowing lending market, is we have a lot of regulations in place, often uh, predicated on the agency problems that arise in the interaction of funds and and so on and so forth. And there's usually a lack of transparency and the like. And in many ways, a DeFi protocol of this nature, say in the securities lending business, that would be, you know, where you would be able to see, for instance, what Vanguard puts into the protocol and, and earns the money off. This would be, you know, giving rise to a much more transparent environment where you can learn and actually see directly whether or not Vanguard actually, say, for instance, passes on the benefits to, its, to the people who they own the, the funds for, right? So that would be all very transparent, which, you know... Regulator should be applauding, right? If I may get this right, um, I, mean, I hope that nobody should have a, a contradiction to that one. Um, the question here comes another one of market power. So, what does Vanguard actually have as an incentive? Say the world will be tokenized to actually use this platform because it's much better for them now to lend it out and not pass on the the benefits to their customers. What mechanisms do you think would bring them uh, in the fold?
3: So, you know, this, this 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 is this does boil down to a question of whether. We expect these, uh, you know, it, it, the sort of real world version of this DeFi lending to be run on the blockchain or not. And so one one nice thing about smart contracts is that any firm that produces a smart contract is effectively competing with future versions of itself. So, for example, you know, you might worry, OK, Aave uh, has this platform. Let's say Vanguard, you know, buys, you know, takes it over and then they want to start increasing uh, the take that 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 the platform takes from from this this interest payments, right? Effectively, because the original Aave protocol already exists as a smart contract on the blockchain, when they want to make this adjustment, make this change, they're going to need to deploy a new smart contract that says, "Hey, here are the new rules of the game." And they're going to have to convince everybody that's using the old contract that they should also use the new contract. This is what I mean by competing with future versions of yourself. And I think this is kind of a nice thing um, because you know if you're going to do something malicious or something like extracting more rents, you have to provide equally value-added, right, with the new version of the smart contract. Or nobody's going to use it, and 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 it's not going to be uh, useful, right? So. I think I think that's something that that smart contract, uh, 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 you know, smart contracts in general is a feature that they have that that is very interesting for for the nature of competition, uh, uh, you know, in these types of markets.
1: I see. So what you're saying is that it's two things. Right? So I think always that we should all be grateful for the existing DeFi world because people are willing to, you know, basically I wouldn't say gamble but experiment with their with their money. Um, on, on trying to figure out you know ways how maybe programmatically and algorithmically we can solve some problems uh, in markets. Uh, but you're also saying that not only that, but there's actually you create a history and you create benchmarks that any future version actually has to be measured upon. I think that's a very interesting thought here. Now if you take a step back and you look at these tokens um, that are governance tokens here and fundamentally, as we say, right so there's uh, you know the reserve pools essentially create a buffer. Um, they collect fees, create a buffer against possible fluctuations in, say, collateral, uh, collateral um, you know, any errors that can occur and so on and so forth. And the way to see this, I think, functionally is its equity, right? And so the owners of these tokens effectively have at least an implicit claim on this equity. Um, now, if we see it that way, then, you know, these, these, these particular, I mean, this particular type of token is a security, now what would that do actually to the usability of these protocols? Um, because all of a sudden you have a completely different mechanism in place and you have a different disclosure requirements and and ownership uh, proofs and so on and so forth. What would that do? The, would you be able to actually operate these protocols in this way? or would you actually have to think of a way how you can separate? The governance again from the reserve pool ownership claims.
2: Uh, that, that's I mean that's a big question. So, um, but I think really goes beyond DeFi lending. We go like any any DeFi protocol you can think of. Like there's uh, uh, when you when you start increasing the regulatory burden, you're also going to increase the cost of operating this kind of business. And then you basically go back to what I was describing earlier. There's like huge barrier to entry in anything that's financial uh, industry uh, related, and for for that reason, you, all have, you have a lot of market power. So that's definitely like one part where the market power of are coming from. And so there is a, there is a trade-off of a, a regulatory scrutiny as well on regulatory, which is regulatory cost. And so that's, that's definitely something that the regulators would need to, to think deeply about, like whether if they, if they start regulating governance token as equity and hence everything falls beyond that, that might be a big problem for anything we are trying to do here.
1: Actually, I'm going to chime in on this one, because I think... So one of the things that you hear in the regulatory space is always, you know, same role, same risk, same regulation. But I think one of the things that we learn from this experimentation in the DeFi world that we see is that maybe there's not the same risk, even though the roles kind of look similar. And we learn here that, you know, maybe different levels of disclosure and, and activity level uh, and and regulation would be required here and I think this is actually probably something that we that it comes into your face and that we see here
3: yeah this is this is all a very sort of tough question to ask uh, answer in in the regulatory environment that we're currently living in and and I think that that part of the regulators fear is this idea of let's say nowadays we trust uniswap right? And so you could imagine a future where Uniswap is a registered company, their token pays dividends, everybody's happy with that world. The problem is that Uniswap's sort of intellectual property is this smart contract. And anybody can go and copy that smart contract and create their own version of Uniswap. Let's say I take it and I, I, I make a small tweak to the feature where I say uh, we're, Uniswap is going to stop collecting funds and we're going to stop paying out dividends. In that world, there's nothing would keep people from using my new smart contract. Um, and just because I deployed the contract doesn't mean that I have any ownership claim over that contract. Just because you use the contract doesn't mean you own it. Doesn't mean you're liable for for, for disclosures of that contract. And so it sort of creates this sort of weird uh, situation where... You know, you can undercut these well-established uh, firms that are, you know, documenting everything by simply copying their code and creating your own version that takes out all of the sort of finance part about paying dividends and things like that. Just, just You can run these protocols without collecting any fees uh, on uh, in, in sort of a side pool. So th- this also speaks to the innovation aspect, which is, you know, how can Uniswap Keep developing or Aave or Compound. How, they, how can they keep developing the next version of these uh, contracts that improve upon previous versions? When there's always a threat of somebody coming and copying and and just uh, uh, deploying their own version of that same smart contract.
0: You know, um, I uh, I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I'll just I'll briefly. This is, of course, a, a very deep topic, and also I'll just briefly say that it's not clear to me the 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 discussion when we get into legal stuff is so let's say, well-defined. And to, to clarify what I mean here, for example, when we talk about Uniswap's relationship to Uniswap's governance token, the thing is the governance token doesn't give you a right over Uniswap Labs, right? So, there's, so they use the same name, but there's a bit of a detachment there. The, there's not a classical issuer in the traditional sense of most securities where what you're talking about when you're talking about the security is a claim on on the issuer um so it seems to me that there's sort of more fundamental legal questions that need to be addressed before the, the the consequent discussion is is well defined
1: yeah that's actually a very good point i mean there's also discussion in the regulatory space not everywhere but in in a significant portion of it actually whether or not a fully decentralized project in any form requires regulation and actually falls under it. So, for instance, if you have a governance token, as you say, in Uniswap, right, has it a- has an issued governance token? If it is simply decentralized, no more new tokens are coming come out. I mean, you know, ultimately, who, if there was to be a compliance requirement, who's actually complying here? Who's go- who's supposed to be doing that, right? So, um, you know, that that that's actually a very interesting question too. But I think we're actually already. Uh, you know the worms are spilling all over the place. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I can I can draw I can, I can rein in the discussion a little bit. I want to go back to something that Quentin said earlier. Yeah,
0: but, but, but before you do, I just want to throw one more worm out there, um, which is so putting our economist hats on for a moment. If you were to think about the incentives of uh, the developer community supporting. These protocols you know pass the initial deployments into subsequent versions and all of that, and you were to somehow force them to partake in regulatory requirements, disclosure requirements, et etc, you change their incentives, maybe they decide, you know what, we'll just launch it, and then we're not part of this thing. there is no entity, or we close the entity because we can't deal with this stuff, and that has implications for you know for innovation, et cetera so yeah, it's uh, you, you can rein back in the worms now.
1: No, no, man, but it, but you're absolutely right. I think you know we're living in a world where there are differences. There is different approaches. You know, the fact that every as 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 uh, Thomas pointed out, everything is public information. All the IP is public information. It's you know this is a different world, and and I think that it requires a very careful thinking of what is really uh, use, useful in terms of regulation, other than Trying to you know force every every round peg into a into a square hole, right. Um, but I want to still rein it back in and go back to Quentin. And one of the things I think that we that I wanted to think about and explore just a little more is the question of what are the extreme risks that that have occurred. So we've talked many times over about the spiking rate during your walk, right? So now we've seen probably a little bit of that. and and as Thomas said, well, yeah, you have a spiking rate, but you pay this literally for like twenty-four seconds, and then you know, who cares? That's like twenty cents extra or so, right? So, what 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 have we seen in terms of drama events? And drama events is what the financial sector has really excels at. And uh, what are what could you imagine could be a drama event? So, if you think about the worst case scenario, what, what would that be? What would that actually look like?
2: I think the worst case scenario would be something like there is uh, the, the value of what's mostly used as collateral asset. Let's say ETH. It's just like suddenly dropping very, very fast. And then the, the consequence of that is that many people will want a short ETH. And because everyone wants a short ETH, because they expect it to drop further, they will want to borrow a lot. And that's, that's going to uh, increase the utilization rate. On the, on, the, on the other side, so the, on the cash market, on stablecoin borrowing market. So where ETH is just a collateral asset. The utilization rate now just goes very high. Let's say at some point it reaches one. When it reaches one, that means that when you're on the other side, when you're actually lending in that, in that market, your stablecoin, then you cannot withdraw anymore. You cannot withdraw anymore. And the value of the collateral asset that's on the other side it just keep, keeps falling, the value keeps falling, um, and then there is just not enough value. You reach like some form like liquidation threshold for the for the whole platform. They start liquidate these E's. they put even more pressure, downward pressure on the price, price really collapsed, they only get a few cents on the dollar on this E's, and then you cannot recover um, whatever what whatever is that, that you that you lent. I think that's like that's like the ultimate catastrophe scenario you can you can imagine. This has never happened before. There's like some safety that are building to try to avoid this kind of situation uh, that we discussed before. But that's like that's like the bad case. scenario.
3: I would follow up with this. Uh, so this spike in, in, in ETH borrowing and ETH interest rates, it actually has occurred, but I view it more as, as sort of a testament to the value that these types of platforms create, because this happened right before the merge. So basically right before the merge, you saw this huge spike in ETH borrowing, right? On these platforms, when you see ETH borrowing, you imagine somebody is borrowing it, selling it, let's say for a stable coin, and now you have a short position in ETH. And so why would you see this happen before the merge? Well, one would be you think the merge is not gonna be successful, that's gonna to lead to a subsequent drop in the price of ETH, and you sort of wanna bet on that. But another way to think about it is, if you are one of the stakers during the merge who had locked up you know, a, high, a large amount of money staking, you would want to find a way to hedge that position. You would want to find a way to say, if this doesn't work out, I'd like to have some sort of compensation for the risk that I'm taking by locking up my ETH in this protocol. And this is exactly how you could do it. You go borrow the ETH, you build that short position, and it effectively hedges anything that you're staking in the protocol against the risk that the merge wasn't successful.
1: I would actually just like to ask all of you for a little bit of view in the future. Um, so imagine a world in which we find a way how we can tokenize existing assets, right? Because ultimately, when we have crypto assets, it's all very well, but you know, ultimately, there is a there's several trillion dollars worth of real assets existing that could be tokenized and could be run on a blockchain. Imagine that's possible. Um, what, what are your views on the usability of the lending platforms, the DeFi lending platforms as they are? Is there a future to it? Will we see much more of a sort of like case-by-case centralized solution where, where the blockchain is more used as a settlement infrastructure. What are your views on the future of this? So let's start with uh, Thomas.
3: Yeah, so I, I'll go back to my Vanguard example because it's the easiest one for me to equate, you know, like that's the next, I think, big iteration, right? So when I buy a Vanguard ETF, right, they're custodying my assets and they're able to lend out those assets. And they're basically trying to assure me that I'm getting enough of the pass-through through the very low rate uh, fee that they charge me to manage that ETF. Now, you can imagine once we allow, once we we're, we have a technology to tokenize equities, right? Now I could effectively you could you could facilitate ETF buying and 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 the lending of the underlying securities through a smart contract where now you have some 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 intermediary that basically deposits those tokens. I can buy an ownership share of the pool of tokens. But when you want to lend those tokens, we do it through a, a, an under, a DeFi lending platform built within that protocol. Now, again, it would be very transparent exactly how much of those uh, lending revenues are being passed through to me, the owner of the underlying assets. And I think that that would be, you know, let's say at the very least, a good thing for the buyers of ETFs. I know for me, if, if I, if I, after reading this paper and finding out that I'm, maybe I'm not getting the pass-through that I thought I was getting uh, for my ETFs, I'm, I'm still not choosing to go buy someone else's ETF because there's huge implications of selling and then having to report the taxes and things like that. So so, so here I see sort of like a kind of clean solution to, to this type of problem. Uh, whether or not it gets implemented will be sort of a, another another open question.
2: All right. So... In order to talk about the future, I'd like to segue starting from the present. I think the present of the financial infrastructure um, in the United States is actually not great for many different reasons. So it's so like we have like settlement at T plus two, T plus three. There's like huge concentration, very high markups. Um, most people, they just don't get any interest on the deposit accounts for uh, market, like market power issues. And things are very untransparent. And I think like going forward, there's actually generally a lot of things we can do and like the technological improvements, such as blockchain, uh, DLT can really help. And so I would envisage a world that's actually improved on all of those dimensions, thanks to this uh, technological improvement. At least I hope so. That's my my wish. wish.
1: Well, I think this uh, this this closes uh, this discussion and this podcast. I'm really grateful for your insight, Quentin and, and Thomas. I hope that the audience finds this insightful and, um, well, you'll hear from us soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find additional materials on owlexplains.com and can stay updated by following us on social media. <laughs> That's all for today.